and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hey, Ashley, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with you. Happy Advent. Happy Advent. Um, This is not an original thought, but it feels like we've been in Advent for as long as we've been in Lent, which is since March. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of waiting, so good to have a a season dedicated to it. Yep. Uh, But we've got a pretty uh, on-brand drink this week for... For Advent, yeah. Tell me, tell me about this wine you're drinking, Zach. So, uh, shout out to my mother, uh, Amy, who decided to uh, take it upon herself to f- figure out a way for us to bond this Advent season when we might be apart a lot of the time. So she sent uh, me and my wife Amanda in a wine Advent calendar. <laughs> so every night she has one as well. So every night we're logging on and opening up a mini bottle of wine together. Um, so she doesn't know this. She'll hear, she'll realize this when uh, she listens on Friday, but I'm going to open one a little early. Nice. Um, I'm a little sad. I don't have one to drink too. I just have regular wine, but it's okay. Fair enough. All right. So I'm going to just, uh, I'm just going to like tape this back up. So when we like get on the FaceTime later tonight, it looks flawless. Ooh, rough one for me. Uh, so the one I just pulled out is a, uh, Red Moscato. Oh, I was going to say Moscato. Gross. <laughs> and it's a red one. Oh, yeah. Man. So sweet. This is terrible. All yeah. right. I feel right, better but... about not having the Advent wine. Yep. It smells like I think it's going to taste. All right. Well, see, now you know how Olga and I felt whenever you tried to make us drink just like gross, sweet drinks. Like, what was uh, it? The shamrock I'll... shake with. <laughs> I'll still drink anything. <laughs> One time, probably twice. Um, Ashley, I hope you have something in front of you. Yes, I do have a normal uh, Pinot Noir. (laughs) Very good. Well, uh, shout out to my mother, Amy, uh, and happy Advent. Cheers. That's awful. Uh, (laughs) The rest of them have been good. This is, I just got unlucky with the straw. Um, But we not only have an Advent drink, we also have an Advent guest this week. Right, Ashley? Who are we talking to? We are talking to Tish Oxenrider. She's the host of the Good List podcast and the author of several books, including her latest, Shadow and Light, A Journey into Advent. Yeah. And as we've alluded to, this is an Advent, kind of like, unlike any other. Um, And so... When we got this book, we thought it was a really great resource for um, really getting into the season, um, trying to figure out new ways to start new traditions, uh, reintegrate um, some of the old ones. But Tish is a great writer. She's a great thinker, too, about how to practice your faith. Um, And this is a really great conversation. It's already Advent, but you you should start now if you haven't started doing anything. So this is going to be a good one for you. Yeah, no, I've read I've read the resources for each night so far. And something we get into in our conversation, which I really like, is that it's accessible for families. uh, So you could be a parent with kids and really enjoy this. But it also works if you're by yourself in your apartment. So it's a great book. Check it out and enjoy our conversation with Tish Oxenrider. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? We've got some new Cardinals. Uh, So that's our first story. So (laughs) it was the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and Pope Francis presided over a sort consistory, which is uh, consistory's church speak for a gathering of Cardinals that gets together. And sometimes there are new ones made there. Um, And this was unprecedented for a couple of reasons. Um, One is that it's obviously... uh, 
taking place during a pandemic. That's why everything's unprecedented right now. Um, two of the 13 new Cardinals couldn't be there because of travel restrictions. Um, but the second reason is that Pope Francis has officially made the first African-American Cardinal, Wilton Gregory, the Archbishop of D.C. Right. So this was a historic moment for black Catholics in the United States who have never seen themselves represented at this highest level of the church hierarchy. Um, and uh, now Cardinal Gregory said that he sees his appointment, quote, as an affirmation of black Catholics in the United States, the heritage of faith and fidelity that we represent. Uh, so it was a great moment. And I would also just want to give a shout out to Cardinal Gregory, who was the only one who didn't take off his mask when he got his red hat uh, from a maskless Pope Francis. I know. We we should say that all the cardinals had to quarantine before yeah. they went to the consistory and they had to get negative tests. But we, mm-hmm. as we know, these are still pretty uncertain times. And so <laughs> seeing Cardinal Gregory keep his mask on was just an, an important reminder, as you know, that we have to take mm-hmm. this serious. Um, but I thought it was funny, like right after Pope Francis gave all the new cardinals the red hats, um, he basically like told them how not to be a cardinal. Yeah, took them down a peg. He, you know, when you become a cardinal, your title becomes eminence. So, you know, that's a very princely term. The, you know, they're called princes of the church in some circles. Yes. But Pope Francis told them, you know, don't think of yourself as princes in in the worldly way. Um, you are still first and foremost pastors who need to be close to your people. You need to avoid corruption and to really need to, to model the the faith, the gospel, and bring it and bring it back to your people. Well, and he he's just like talked about the you know the color red that they wear is it's it's the color of blood and it's supposed to symbolize right your you know. Both Jesus's willingness to die for the church um, and also the martyr's willingness to die for the church. So it really is meant to be this type of really close, humble service for the church and the, and the laity. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what, I don't know, what you hope for from from a new cardinal or for all the cardinals we have in the United States, um, because their, their role is a little, it, they're not exactly higher up in the U.S. hierarchy. Their role is more based in Rome. But I feel like it still matters who the Cardinals are in our own country. Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, just because like we're, we think hierarchically, so I Catholics see this and see these are the the ones that are talking to the to the Pope most often. Um, I, I do think we reduce their role a little bit in the media mm-hmm. and in sort of our popular imagination that the only thing Cardinals do are pick the next Pope which is obviously a huge and important responsibility. And that is true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's been an angle that a lot of people have focused on that the Cardinals that Francis has made will help pick his successor. And so this, you know, influences the church for years to come, but it also matters now, right? Yeah, no, I think in the U.S. context, you, you know, these are the most prominent churchmen um, that we have in the country. And so I personally want them to be models of the you know, the kind of pastors that Pope Francis has said smell like they're sheep. So they're not, you know, living lavish lives in mansions, but really, uh, you know, down on the ground level, um, talking to their people and hearing the concerns of their flock um, and, you know, living simply and modeling um, service and faith uh, just in their everyday actions. Yeah. And you know what I I think it's um, interesting is that Francis has really done away with sort of like the princely concept of becoming a cardinal, right? It used to be if you were in a certain geographical location, you know, you, you were sort of just like by default given the red hat. Um, and Francis has really made it a point to like reach out 
in a global perspective and try and bring in advisors from the peripheries, as he said. We've got, you know, a cardinal from Brunei and the Philippines and Rwanda and Chile, like the places that have not traditionally been represented in Rome. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about how Pope Francis selects cardinals and the way that it's pretty different from his predecessors, definitely listen to Colleen Dully's uh, Inside the Vatican podcast from this week, because I found it fascinating uh, getting into the kind of insider baseball <laughs> um, of how cardinals are made uh, under Pope Francis. Yeah, it's just generally always a good idea to listen inside the Vatican. So this week, definitely no different. Uh, what's our next story, Ashley? So next we are going to talk about the U.S. bishops and the COVID vaccine. So we are potentially weeks away from having an effective vaccine um, against COVID-19 approved by the FDA, which would be, you know, very good news. Uh, but unfortunately, there have been some U.S. bishops spreading misinformation about this vaccine that that could make some of the faithful think otherwise. Yeah. So a couple examples. One, uh, Bishop Joseph Strickland, who is the head of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas, tweeted in November, the Moderna vaccine is not morally produced. He falsely said that the vaccine uses stem cells from aborted fetuses. And then the Bishop of Fresno made a video saying that he wouldn't take the vaccine and others should not if they were made from cells related to abortion or IFV. Right. So the stem of the controversy here is that it is true that the church teaches that it's unethical to use stem cells derived from aborted fetuses in medical research. Um, but church teaching also allows for the use of vaccines that have compromised origins when there are no other treatments available. Um, that was actually not something I knew before we were getting into the story that there is sort of this caveat. Yeah, no, I didn't either. It's, there's a lot of nuance about like the level of culpability there. So like there's one thing if you're the scientist using these stem cells in your research and then as you get further and further away from that origin point, there are yeah different levels of moral culpability. And they have said very clearly that um, even the widespread use of these vaccines um, is, is ethical um, when there's no other options available. But this is a little bit of a moot point, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, so there was this internal memo uh, shared with all the U.S. bishops that was leaked to our colleague Michael O'Loughlin in which the bishops who chair the Committee on Doctrine and Pro-Life Activities, so you know they have their pro-life bona fides, stating clearly that Moderna and Pfizer both have vaccines that are ethically uncontroversial. Yeah, so it's this situation where you've got the bishop saying like, hey, look, that's you know, alluding to, there were no names named, but alluding to some statements that have been made publicly, like the ones we mentioned, that that's not correct. Um, and also not an important point right now because both of those vaccines are uncontroversial at the moment. Yeah. So I think it's, we brought the story up because the church needs to be vigilant against spreading misinformation around COVID. You know, we saw earlier in the pandemic priests who were, you know, telling people not to wear masks um, because it was driven by fear and things like that. And now with this vaccine coming out, I, I don't know. There's just nothing pro-life about scaring people away from a vaccine that is going to protect the most vulnerable. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one thing to say that this is just a couple of people, but in the age of the Internet, right, this is a problem that the secular press and the secular world has as well. Misinformation is not constrained to a certain diocese, right? And so you've got stories like this or tweets like this that have a reach far beyond what something this internal memo might get to, right? And so the church, as the bishop's conference was here, 
needs to really be on the forefront in defending against misinformation, um, particularly when there's so much at stake. Amen to that. Now stick around for our conversation with Tish Oxenreiter. Joining us from Austin, Texas, is Tish Oxenreiter. She's the host of The Good List podcast and the author of several best-selling books, including her latest, Shadow and Light, A Journey into Advent. Welcome to Jesuitical, Tish. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on. Yeah, man, really excited to get into this. We're excited to put some of the heavy topics behind us and sink into some some waiting. (laughs) You know what? I think all of us are. I think so many of us listening and are like, please, let's think of something happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe a good place to start. The uh, the book is beautiful, um, but you talk a little bit in the beginning about your childhood experience of Advent. I'm wondering if you could just start by describing that to us, because I think it will resonate with a lot of people. So I grew up evangelical, and this is basically, you know, I'm in Central Texas, so, you know, church is on every corner. And yet I never really heard about Advent beyond just like this wreath with four candles at the front that you know, every now and then they would light. But I mostly associated Advent with those cardboard calendars you get at the grocery store with like mediocre chocolate. Mm -hmm. And it never appealed to me. Like, why would I want to do that? Christmas is so much better. And in fact, I thought of it as part of Christmas, really, because in my mind, the Christmas season was throughout December. And then it the last day was December 25th. And this is just simply having grown up in um, an environment that didn't really recognize a liturgical calendar, which is completely fine. It's just my reality. Yeah, but Catholics are guilty of the exact, I mean, I don't want to make people feel guilty, but like I, I was the same way. At, oh, got it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, totally. Yeah, we we know these words, but we don't really know what they mean. And if they're not doing anything for us in our day-to-day life, mm-hmm. we can just kind of shove them aside and move on. So to mm-hmm. me, the word Advent was like one of those other, you know, Christmassy words that I knew nothing about. Yeah. And when did it start to feel like something was lacking in in that? It wasn't until I had kids and I had little kids, really. And the reason is because I would see them get so excited for the holidays. And me as a mom who loved the holidays, but I was also very much a kind of, I I would get sensory overload pretty easily and I'm an introvert. And when you've got, you know, my oldest was first grade when I first looked into Advent and my youngest was one. And so they were all just loud and I needed some, I felt like, oh my gosh, I just need some structure to all this. <laughs> you guys stop wanting to do everything all the time. Um, and so I, I just was craving something that kind of gave me permission to do something slower and to do something with like a point to it, you know, where I could like check a box every day. Mm. Did you think you were going to find like a, a thousand, like thousands of years old tr- a solution to that problem? Or were you more looking for like something... I guess, more contemporary or modern. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I, I'm trying to put myself back in those shoes. I don't think I was looking for something really old because I was in survival mode, which a lot of mm-hmm. parents are. Um, for me, I, I mean, this is a whole other side topic, but I was also going through a little bit of a deconstruction of my faith and what it meant. And I was just doing what I knew to do, but wasn't in love with it really. And so for me, there was a bit of a disconnect from that. I wasn't really thinking, I want to bring my kids in to their story and their small part in the role of the global historic church that Jesus founded. No, I was in it like, what can I find 
that I can tell my kids, we'll make, you know, paper snowflakes in two days. Today, we'll just bake cookies and everything will be okay. Um, That's the mode I was in. I was not looking for something rich and deep at this time. But did you find, you did find something (laughs) rich and deep? (laughs) But lo, I found something (laughs) because as I started looking, I found, so there's this one tradition, maybe this is more of a Protestant thing. I don't know, but it's called a Jesse tree. Have you guys heard of this? I have not. <laughs> okay. okay. So chances maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I think honestly, looking back, I, I think this is a Protestant's attempt to create something that ultimately Advent already did centuries before. But it's this idea that starting on December 1st, you walk through the story of what God has done with uh, you know, the people of God starting in creation all the way to the birth of Christ. And so for a little story every day, you read from the Bible, and then you have this separate tree called a Jesse tree, and you put an individual little ornament on it that is reflective of that story. Well, this was my thing of thinking, oh, this is reaching back into something richer and deeper that I can get my kids to get excited about. But the problem I had with this was that I would feel behind all the time, you know, because this is a story idea that you had to like read Mm -hmm. the previous chapter in order to read the next chapter. And so the way reality is for all of us in the holidays is, you know, you've got some random late nights, you've got some kind of office party, you've got to do random things. And so you can't always just show up and do the thing every time. And so, you know, five days in a row of not doing it. And when you've got little kids, you can't say, okay, guys, we're going to read for two hours and you're going to love this. (laughs) Um, And you're going to, you know, draw closer to God through this. And so it just went out the window. Like, I can't do this. And so I just continued searching for something that felt um, theologically rich and meaningful, yet not inaccessible. Um, And I would find different Advent devotionals of sort, but all of them were either so um, heady that my kids would just probably zone out um, because it just wasn't for them or the other way around. It was so saccharine, sweet, and, you know, relied heavily on crafts. And I don't hate crafts. It's just not my MO. (laughs) And I wanted something in between, something that was like really accessible for the layperson, yet not watered down. So where did you land on that? Because I imagine it's got to be super tough to keep, you know, yourself engaged, but also someone who is your younger children and your older children at the same time. What were like the ingredients you were looking for? Yeah, I wanted something that (laughs) reminded my kids, okay, the thing that we're celebrating here is Jesus. Um, And yet I didn't even know what that meant, really. I mean, don't get me wrong. I grew up in a Christian home. I knew the birth of Christ. Christ, that story backwards and forwards, but I didn't know what to do with it really because I wasn't really well versed or catechized in the idea of like how it ties in together with the story of God's people. And so I knew I wanted something from the Bible, but I just wasn't sure. That's why I tried the Jesse tree. Um, And then yet I wanted something that the kids would look forward to. So I would tie it with like an activity, you know, like bake cookies or, or, you know, make paper snowflakes or whatever. Um, But it just felt like I was giving myself lots of chores and assignments. And so it was by the winter of 2013, and my oldest was eight by this time. And I just remember thinking, I actually said out loud to my husband, Kyle, I hate that I'm about to say this because I don't want to be one of these people, but I kind of feel like a Scrooge, like a curmudgeon. And I... I sort of wish we could just skip the holidays this year. Is that? I go through the I go through this phase like every year and I don't even have like that long list of, of things that you're talking about. <laughs> right. 
Right. I think we all do because of just reasons. I mean, you name them. We've got so many reasons. And he agreed, but we just powered through. And this is kind of where the story gets a little bit more unique to us. But the following year, we this is something that we had been planning since our youngest was a newborn. But um, we backpacked around the world for a year. So we hit pause on our normal life. I was, you know, working full time from the internet. And my husband was working with me. So we had the freedom to work from anywhere. And our kids were young enough to where they weren't super rooted. And so we backpacked around the world for a school year. And that was our permission slip to just do exactly that, like skip the holidays kind of sort of. I mean, we did do some fun things that actually were really cool, but skip the rigmarole, you know, the like usual Mm -hmm. hubbub of calendar and and all the decor stuff and expectations and all the, I mean, obviously we hardly did presents because we were each living out of one backpack. And that was so nice. And it sort of gave us this, this reflection of like, oh, this is the stuff we actually miss. This is the stuff we don't. And this is what we will want to incorporate back into our life when we go back home and um, start again. And then, so it was that following Advent that I, I started writing what eventually became this book. Um, because I needed it for ourselves. You know, I, I couldn't find what I was looking for, so I decided to, to make our own. Yeah. Well, obviously, no one is backpacking around the world right now, but no. the, the <laughs> world we're in actually does give a lot of people a chance to kind of reset and rethink how they do Advent because, you know, we're not going to be going to the office parties and going to the mall and all of that stuff. So, so what was it in that period um, when you were traveling that that you missed and wanted to, you know, build back um, the next Advent season? Well, it's funny that, you know, Zach asked about whether I was trying to reach back to the ancient church. And I wasn't at the time, but I I noticed as soon as I was, we were traveling and we started interacting with um, so many people around the world and embedded into all these cultures we were visiting, the global church. I started thinking about what unites us, what connects us, and it's our shared history and our shared focus on the essential truths, you know, found in, I guess you could say the Nicene Creed, these these essentials. And so I started craving this recognition of the ancient church in our family's life. So I wanted, you know, we would visit this one small random town and there was this amazing chapel built for St. Nicholas. And it was, you know, out of nowhere. And, you know, I wanted to learn more. And so it gave us a hunger for connecting with the saints of the past. And um, I don't know what they could teach us about how to recognize things like the birth of Christ and the anticipation and the living in the already not yet that we recognize from Advent. So that's what I was basically craving is this connection to the ancient church and really the global church. Can you talk about some of, so if someone is uh, looking, you know, looking forward to this Advent and wanting to do things a little bit differently, what are, what are, what are some of the practices in, in, in your book and the way that it's laid out that, that you encourage people to, to mark the season every day? Yeah, every day has a few things that you could incorporate. So there's a psalm, and I, I chose the psalms exclusively because it's the church's old prayer book, um, a short reflection about the psalm. A question that you could either discuss as a family or journal on your own or just think about throughout your day, a song to meditate on, and a work of art. So there there are five things to every day 
And I know a lot of people will get easily overwhelmed. Um, What I tell people to do is to think of Advent as a gift and not a requirement, and to think of it as scaffolding, that the church has given us scaffolding to hold up our time. So we walk through Advent, whether or not we recognize it. I tell people, okay, I'm not at all saying do all five of these things. Pick two. Pick two of the things that connect with you the most. Um, You know, there's also lighting a candle. So light the candle and listen to the song or read the Psalms and reflect on the question. Do do the thing that is life-giving to you and let go of the rest because it's a gift. It's not a requirement. God's not up there, you know, checking the box with his clipboard wondering, you know, what all are you doing? Um, This is for us. And so we should treat it as such. I really like that framing because my primary experience of Advent um, is similar to my experience of Lent. And this is very Catholic is one of guilt. Right. Right. Because I, uh, at the beginning, um, and I'm experiencing this right now, I'm looking at all the things that I want to do during the season to be capital H holier. And then about midway through, I'm like, yep, well, (laughs) missed all of that. Right. Um, I won't even bother recommitting because it's basically half over. So whatever. Um, but I really like this idea of gift because it, it it does encourage more things like freedom and intentionality as opposed to the checklist that I, you know, I've, you know, they're, they're important for a reason, right? Because they give some structure, but like scaffolding is the right way to think about it. I think. Yeah. I de- definitely resonate with that idea of scaffolding. Um, I think you've had, you've mentioned one of the topics on your podcast was acedia, which I think is like the sin I am most likely to <laughs> always be in danger of falling into. Uh, um, and I don't know how, like you give a good definition of it, but like spiritual slothishness or mm-hmm. yeah. And so yeah. I, I need, I need Advent and Lent to be kind of like that period after ordinary time where it's, even if I fall short, I at least try to recommit to some sort of deeper spiritual life for a season. I mean, I think acedia, maybe besides wrath, acedia is the sin of 2020. I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of us are feeling that, you know. Um, Ashley, I remember when you came back from, or when y'all came back from your summer break, you commented mm-hmm. on that over the summer. And I think yeah. so many of us felt that just sort of, you know, I just, I know what I want to do. I know what I want to care about, but I just don't care about it. How do mm-hmm. I make myself do it? And I think the things like this, it's not legalism. It is a way to just give us a little support, you know, kind of like the bumpers on the bowling alley, just to keep us in line because mm-hmm. I know myself too well, you know, I'm going to go off the rails if I'm not careful. So how do you do that in an, in an advent when the rest of the world is in full on 100% Christmas mode? <laughs> because I, I I know you write in the book, you don't want to be, a you know, sort of a an advent purist or a cultural purist, but I, I do find that um, it's sometimes easier to lash out and Christmas shame rather than re- rededicate oneself to being interiorly focused. Right. Um, you know, I think of all the years, 2020 is probably the year we can really be more intentional about this because we're going to be home so much more. You know, I mean, there's not going to be as many Christmas events to go to. Um, and so for me, because Advent is a gift, I don't need to force other people to take it, especially if the world around me is largely secularized, why would they recognize Advent? It's not fair to push that on them, really. And so, you know, I love the the church's teaching on the domestic church. I mean, you know, the idea of being focused on our churches 
within us, you know, our families and, and and whoever we live with as a way of cultivating an interior life. You know, I think a domestic monastery um, leads to an inward monastery. And so whenever we focus on our homes, the things we can control, then it affects our attitude a little bit more. Like I tell people a lot whenever we think about Christmas, you know, if, if I were to ask you, okay, what was your favorite gift you got on your ninth Christmas? You probably would not be able to name it. Mm-hmm. However, you can look back and think of how your home maybe felt or the smells, you know, from the kitchen, or the song that your dad played on repeat and drove you crazy, (laughs) or just the traditions you had in your family. So it's a lot more about how our homes feel that matter than about like doing the exact right things. And so when we focus on that, like the things we can control in our homes, that's when we can have an advent that is truly about the grace of, of expectation and not about um, making sure the culture around us follows suit because it's just not going to, and that's okay. And so when we go out and about, we totally enjoy the Christmas season. You know, we will look at the lights around the neighborhood. We will listen to the Christmas music when we're at the stores because why wouldn't we, you know, um, we have the total freedom to do that. But then when, when we're at home, we control what we do. We do the Advent candles. We play more Advent focused music. We talk about it more frequently. We slowly decorate as a way of visually reminding us that it's not here yet. Things like that. We focus on what we can control, basically. Yeah. For the record, I do remember my ninth Christmas present. It was really my, my parakeets, Petey and Lucy. <laughs> okay, I picked oh the wrong goodness. Christmas one. <laughs> if you had said tenth Christmas, though, you would have been you would have okay. Oh, right. Uh, but so one question I do have is, you know, we've talked about how um, celebrating Advent in a family setting, and your book is is very well suited to to people of different ages. Um, but what would you what would you recommend for someone who maybe lives alone in a studio in Brooklyn celebrating yeah. Advent? <laughs> <laughs> right. So I would say that I had um, people living alone in mind as well whenever I wrote this um, because it really is an inward reflective devotional that can be turned into journaling. So, you know, all of us can read the Psalms on our own. All of us can read a paragraph or two silently to ourselves. And then you can take the question and reflect on it as you then go to work or go about your day or write in it in your journal at night before you go to bed. You can play the song that I've suggested for that day. You can look at the art that I've linked to. Um, So basically the same. And yet at the same time, I would recommend, and this is kind of that tapping into the Acedia thing, because I know we're so tired of virtual connecting. I mean, I am so, so, so tired of it. I can't do one more Zoom meeting. But, um, and yet... I think the answer a lot of times to Acedia is to do the exact thing you don't want to do. And so I think it means... It's very Ignatian, by the way. It's very Jesuit I know, right? It so is. Mm -hmm. Um, Is to connect virtually with people, even though you don't like it. So make it fun. Make it, you know, lean into the dumb ridiculousness of having to do things over Zoom. Read the book together, or at least, you know, weekly talk about it and, you know, have fun with it, make cocktails, you know, follow up with a watch party, watching some holiday movie, like just lean into the fun and make it work for you without feeling like, um, you know, you have to check a box or else you're not really recognizing Advent. This can be however you need to need it to be for you. You, After Advent, um, Christmas hits December 25th and most people are chucking out the tree (laughs) on December 26th. How do you, you know, maybe even beyond the 12 days of Christmas, what's the importance of 
living in like this scaffolding of liturgical time during what, you know, we would call ordinary time. Our circadian rhythms are um, built into us. They're hardwired by God to where we do things more naturally throughout the day, where we have more energy, we're more tired, we have to sleep, we have to work, we have to stop and eat. God made us a certain way to not just float above time as though it doesn't exist. And, um, you know, like I've mentioned, seasons, we, you know, it's very obvious when you're a farmer, for example, or even a backyard gardener, that you have to live into the seasons. But sometimes we just forget that in our sort of hyper-connected, digitized world that we are still living in seasons. And so to me, it's a really helpful tool just to remind myself, even though, you know, January 6th does not feel any different from December 29th, it is different. And I can... um, I can recognize the difference through the liturgical calendar. So, yeah, the 12 days of Christmas, we recognize in our home simply by leaving the tree up through J- January 6th. And we do things that are more associated with Christmas in those 12 days. My friends and I have an annual cookie swap that we do after December 25th. We watch certain movies, things like that. But then once January 6th hits, you know, the 12th night and we're in Epiphany, um, I like to just start winding it down, but doing things still to keep my spirits up because I think a lot of us get down in January and February, you know, because mm-hmm. it's no longer Christmas, but it is still gray. And I mean, in fact, it's grayer, you know, and there's and there's no, nothing long, to look forward to. There's nothing to look forward to except <laughs> Lent. <Yeah. laughs> it's just like, yay. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a while till the spring. And, and so, you know, there's that tradition of Candlemas, and I love that because it's like, yeah, I'm going to just light a bunch of candles around this house and not feel ashamed about it because I need it for my own personal well-being. Um, just leaning into it, not pretending it's not there. The, the blahs is what I mean, you know, the temptation to acedia. And the liturgical calendar helps, I think, because then we've got a, a epiphany, and then we've got, you know, other things to look forward to. And it just, I don't know, gives us a little permission to break things up. Yeah. And in addition to the, you know, living liturgically, uh, one of the resources you've created in your own life is what you call a a rule of life styled after the monastic rule of St. Benedict. Can you tell us a little bit about about that, what it means? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a rule of life is simply a commitment to live your life a particular way. And that's all it is. But St. Benedict, as many people know, wrote it down for his um, monastic group. And he was really the first one that we know of that actually wrote down his rules. And if you've ever read the ancient original um, rule of life he wrote, it's really specific. It's it's interesting, actually, mm-hmm. because he'll get into things like, you know, how you should think about prayer when you do pray all the way to who needs to stand at the door and sign people in and out, you know, very administrative (laughs) kind of things. This was written into his rule. And I found that really interesting that he found that important to do. And so for me, I thought of this as simply a permission to write down what mattered to me, mostly so that I can relieve myself from the things that don't matter to me. So by writing down the things I cared about, I realized, oh, 99% of the things that I feel like I should care about, I actually don't, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And so I divided up my rule of life into six areas, um, home, health, money, work, uh, family, and community. So those six areas. And I basically went through various exercises to help me think through 
what I cared about, mostly by um, thinking of where I wanted to be three years from now in all those areas and then working backwards. And so I created this thing, um, this kind of, I don't want to say a method or a system because I think you can do it, you know, however you feel led. But this worked for me because I felt really overwhelmed at the thought of just creating a rule of life from scratch. Um, And so I then just kind of wrapped it up into a really short audio series to lead anybody through it who wanted to create a rule of life for them. And so I've been doing this for several years now. I revisit my rule of life on my birthday. Um, I just kind of see, oh, is this still true for me? Is this still what my priorities are and and what I care about the most? And then just make a few tweaks here and there. And it's just a nice way to check in with yourself and see how you're doing on the things that you say matter to you. Well, it's so funny because it just sounds like the saints were the original like life coaches right, of, I know. Their, of their time, right? I mean, seriously. So I've actually gone through life coach training and then I, I kind of laughed at it because eventually I thought, gosh, this just feels Ignatian or Benedictine, but in like <laughs> in like modern words that don't feel so, you know, heavy or or scary or overwhelming or whatever. It's kind of the same idea. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> So it's 2020. You wrote this book before you realized that the world was crashing down, I think, um, unless you had predator knowledge. <laughs> um, what do you what are you looking forward to? What are the things that are sort of percolating in your own heart right now? Yeah, you know, right now it's very easy for me to be sad about the things that aren't happening. When I think about a few of the traditions we always do, I live in a small town in Texas. This is just north of Austin that frequently wins this Best Town Square of Texas award, which it is very proud of. And I live right off the square. Like we live in a very walkable neighborhood with all sorts of cool places. Um, just a block or two away. And so we always have this stroll in the square is what it's called. And it is an annual tradition and is a big deal. And people ask to park in our driveway and, you know, and there's a parade that goes right by our house. Obviously that's canceled this year. And I'm just like today, especially just really bummed about that being canceled. I mean, and I'm a hardcore introvert. Those things usually make me break out in hives. I wouldn't go to it, but since it's in my neighborhood, I'll, I'll walk around. Um, I'm thinking of the, you know, this annual Handel's Messiah my friends and I go to every year. That's canceled. A lot of the things that are canceled, it's easy for me to mull over and think about that I am choosing to think about what are the ways that this could actually be a good thing. Okay, so um, this means more time to not, I don't know, um, busy myself with the calendar. I mean, we fill up our holiday calendar so full usually, and it's not going to be like that. What would it be like to have a holiday season without something to do every single day? We have permission to do that this year. Um, we have permission to, I say, kind of do it up a little more in our homes. You know, I usually like to keep things pretty simple, but seeing as we're not going to be spending money on lots of other just outside activities, what can we bring in the home to make it a little more festive? You know, can we do more movie marathons, maybe buy a new board game? I mean, I know I'm sounding (laughs) like I'm 90 years old, but these are the things that (laughs) I think about. There's nothing wrong with a good jigsaw puzzle. That's so true. That's so true. And so to me, this is, it's just embracing that idea of partial solutions um, Mm -hmm. that I think is true all the time. And honestly, this era of COVID just reminds us of the truth that's always there is that things rarely are exactly how we want them. And so what can you do partially to make them work instead? That's really how life works 99% of the time. We're just aware of it right now because of this pandemic. 
Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for you uh, for reframing the, this season as as a gift and not not an o- obligation. That's certainly um, a much better way to think about it, especially mm-hmm. this year. But. Well, I'm telling it to myself, so I get it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You probably know there's one last question coming for you. Um, so if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why? I had to really think about this because I, ever since I was a listener of yours, I've always thought in my head, you know, who would I say? And then of course now (laughs) it's time and I'm not sure, but, um, I landed on this a few months ago and I think it hasn't changed. And, um, that would have to be Mrs. Molly Weasley. I love... Harry Potter for all the reasons that we all do. But Molly Weasley is just my favorite character in that whole series. I love her so much. I love her um, hospitality. I love how she um, doesn't take anything from anyone. (laughs) She's just, she's tired. And so she just says what she means. She's delightful. She's funny. And she defends her family fiercely and cares about what's true and good and beautiful. And so she's my favorite. And so I would canonize Molly. Saint Molly. I'm, (laughs) I'm obsessed with this answer. Uh, I think that's maybe the first Harry Potter character on the podcast. But yeah, that does feel shocking. It is. Uh, Most people don't give themselves permission to canonize fictional characters. I think it's an out that more uh, that more people should feel like they they can. Well, there you go. I'm giving people more permission to do such. I want to hear. I want to hear fictional characters. Love it. Well, St. Molly, pray for us. Um, Tish, the book is Shadow and Light, A Journey into Advent. You can find that wherever books are sold and uh, we'll link to it in our show notes. Um, Anything else you want to plug right now? You know, not really. My podcast is we're turning it into a little bit more about exploring sacramentality. So I think people who like Jesuitical would probably like it. It's with my friend Seth Haynes. And so you can find that at tishoxenwriter.com where I have all my other stuff too. All right. I I will confirm for our listeners. It is something you would enjoy. Yes. So (laughs) thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you, Tish. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for some housekeeping. We have got some Advent resources for you. That's right. If you enjoyed this conversation with Tish and you're like, man, I really need to get into that. (laughs) Well, look no further than Tish's book, but also America Media, where we're putting out daily Advent reflections in written and podcast form. Yes. So on the Word podcast, which you can, you know, find wherever you get your favorite podcast, just subscribe to the Word. Editors at America have written reflections on the gospel reading for each day during Advent. That includes Zach and I. I'm not sure when mine's coming out. I think maybe the third week of Advent. Um, but we'll, we'll. I'm in the second week. You're in the third. I think okay. that's correct. Very good. And yeah, they're really, really. I mean, I won't speak for my own reflection, but <laughs> my colleagues' reflections are really, really beautifully done, and it's a beautifully produced podcast. And it's short. It's just you know a few minutes of your day to you know. Just really focus on on Advent and the coming of Christ and Christmas. Um, so I highly recommend that. And then you can also find other Advent articles at americamag.org slash Advent 2020. We've got 
got a playlist. We've got, what else do we have? We've got essays from Father James Martin. Um, and just to circle back, y- Ashley won't speak for her own reflection, but I'll speak for mine. It's pretty good. <laughs> I worked really hard on it. Um, and so I would be honored if you go and listen to it. But as Ashley said, americamag.org slash advent2020 is where to find all of that. And also check out The Word wherever you listen to your podcast. And we want to give a huge thank you to the new members of our Patreon community, Abel Weird and Stephen Johnson. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't make the podcast without uh, folks like you. And this this is actually going to be our last week with the Fratelli 2D reading group. But Patreon members can go back and watch all of those uh all those conversations on the Patreon website. Yeah, I want to shout out especially the Patreon members that joined in for one, two. Some of them have gone to all four reading groups, mm-hmm. um, like like a lot of reading groups. I think you know a lot of people start them ambitiously um, <laughs> or think they're going to start them, and then the reading comes around, and this is how I always end up in book clubs, fall yeah. off. But a lot of people just read a whole encyclical, yeah. and an encyclical is not light reading. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not a novel. The plot, <laughs> the plot could be better. I won't lie. But the insights are great. So shout out to the entire Patreon community, um, especially those that sat through this uh, this discussion group with Fratelli Tutti. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I've got a consolation uh, that doesn't necessarily feel like one. Um, but uh, my wife and I decided that the thing that made sense for us and that was also safest was to kind of travel to Ohio to have a a small Thanksgiving here um, and sort of just stay for the month rather than travel back and forth uh, between New York. So we're going to stay for the time being, um, which is, you know, tough to be away from home. Um, It's been, it's also been a tough time in general, obviously. And I I found myself feeling like both like with my relationship with God and just like my, just sort of life in general, that it's a little bit like I'm studying abroad is this feeling that I have (laughs) where I like miss, I, you know, there's this thing happening, but I really miss these people back home. Um, and that's sort of how I was like approaching this conversation with God where I was like, Oh, you know, there are some things going here, but I really miss what I'm used to. And the challenge that Advent has presented me with is to, uh, you know, look, you're not studying abroad. This is your real life, whether you like it or not. And there's no telling when it's going to end. And so God is sort of like inviting, like, hey man, I'm here. Uh, And so this like being invited into relationship, even now, even with everything going on, even when it does feel like I'm in a a foreign land, um, that's been the invitation right now. Yeah. I feel like my, I also have a consolation and it's like, the inverse of yours. Um, so as, as we were talking about before, I uh, have written I, on Monday, I had a deadline to write this reflection on Advent and longtime listeners of the show know that writing gives me great anxiety and no kind of writing is more anxiety producing than spirituality writing because I'm like, I feel like a fraud. I have no spiritual insights to offer anyone. Um, why am I doing this? But in writing this reflection, I kind of like leaned into that and was thinking about the ways, you know, I often joke that I'm like more religious than spiritual um, and in, and I'm really supposed to be both. And I got to the end of writing this and I had kind of convinced myself. And I, I never, you know, I always thought of writing as trying to convince other people, not, not like writing to yourself. Um, but I got to the end of this and I just felt this like very strong desire to, to have an advent where I, 
took my own advice and like really made time to have like undivided, give my undivided attention to, to Christ in prayer. And I am back in Brooklyn in my uh, little apartment and you and <laughs> your wife and your sister, the main people I see uh, here are gone. And so I am going to have a few weeks where I just have a lot of opportunity to, to have, to have quiet time um, and pray and, be alone. Um, and I found myself just like very kind of excited about it. Um, and really looking forward to just taking advantage of that and being really intentional about Advent this year. And so I'm just trying to like, hold on to that, that desire. Um, you know, in Ignatian spirituality, you're, you know, you're supposed to pay attention to things like that. Like that God speaks to us through our desires. Um, and it wasn't just like a head thing. It was like, I was viscerally excited about it. So yeah, I, I'm ho- trying to hold on to that. I'm sure it won't. See, this is what I did when I talked to Eric. I was like, oh, it's only two days in. I'll probably lose it. And he's like, stop listening to the evil spirit. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Stay with it. <laughs> that is what happens. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just going to um, appreciate that invitation that I that I really felt deep down um, and try to hold on to that all Advent. <laughs> well, you're already you're already two days in. Not just, yeah. I'm, you're only two days in. You're already two <laughs> days in. Yeah. All right, get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.